Uh, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, this is to return to that passage that we had skipped over before. So it would be 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17 through 34. Um, this, uh, happens, this passage contains uh, one of those ultra-familiar passages in, in the Bible. It's one of the places where we uh, often go for our words of institution for the Lord's Supper. And so uh, for many of you, I'm sure that you have either read it or heard it or perhaps heard it preached, um, I don't know, a hundred times. Um, some of you perhaps, and for good reason. Uh, this smaller passage that our passage contains uh, is packed with just awesome theology all by itself. People write books on this passage, and, uh, and they could write many more. I mean, it's just, it's great. Um, but we don't always consider it within its larger context. And so, um, when you have that feeling, it's a, it's a passage you're, you're familiar with, sort of that know-it-all switch, and it just sort of, it's like just ready to click on over, and so I just want to, I want to, if you can put pause on that, and, um, and, because there's even more awesome here, and so um, let's pay attention uh, to what God has for us tonight. I'm going to start uh, at verse 2, and then skip over the next part, and then pick up at verse 17. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Now, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you, do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this, is the new this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another, 
If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So that's the Lord to bless his word. Dear Almighty God, I pray that you would protect us from our familiarity. Help us to see you as you present yourself in this passage, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would stir up our faith. Make us stronger in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Who are you? Where did you come from? Those are some of the questions that uh, many people are asking these days. Ever since the recent dawn of readily available DNA testing, there's been an explosion of people trying to discover their heritage through this new science. You've perhaps had conversations about this. A number of marketers uh, this year have suggested that the most popular Christmas gift will not be an Elmo talking doll or, or a drone, but it will be a DNA testing kit. And I believe it because I've already received my DNA testing kit early. You need to get yours, you know? Um, and I'm pretty excited about it. I, I want to learn a little bit more about where I came from. And many of you have uh, probably wondered the same thing, or at least you've felt that itch. It's, it's, a, it's supposedly one of the, the, the number one questions that those who are adopted want to find out. Where did I come from? Who am I? And the reason is because that knowledge of where we came from feels like it unlocks some secret power of who we are. You see, it's not just interesting, but it feels like it tells us how to understand ourselves. And apart from it, we just can't understand ourselves. It's like the anchor of our soul. And you've probably observed some of that yourself. As you know, human beings were story people, right? We love stories, and we love to listen to stories, but have you ever noticed what happens when that story has something to do directly with you? The stories of how our grandparents immigrated to this country, or what they did to survive and make it when they got here, or, or where your last name comes from, or, or why did your parents name you what they did? You see, despite our hearing hundreds and thousands of stories, when we hear these stories, even if it's just once or even from a distance, it seems like they permanently attach themselves to our brains. And then they don't just hang out there. Those become part of our DNA. We share them with others again and again and again. And why? Well, well because they're more than memories to us. They're a historical picture of how we understand ourselves, and oftentimes they're the context that most shapes what we hope to be. Well, in a certain sense, that's what Paul is addressing in Corinth. Their problem is they've lost track of or they've forgotten who they are. That's the point of the contrast between Paul's commendation in verse 1 and his refusal, his utter refusal, to commend them in verse 17. It's because in the former, they remembered him and what he had taught them in everything. But in the latter, it doesn't appear that they've remembered anything at all. And so what's the way forward? Well, Paul first addresses what they really look like, kind of showing them the mirror. Second, what they're supposed to look like. And third, 
how to recover what they've lost. Let's look at these in turn. First, what the Corinthians really look like. Despite our uh, familiarity with the center point of this passage, it's not so easy to picture what Paul is describing in the, in the precept part. He says, verse 17, when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. It's to say they're coming together for worship, mind you, like this, okay, does more harm than good. And so maybe you can imagine, we, we encourage everyone pretty strongly that it would be for, for their benefit to come to morning and evening worship services, right? Have you ever heard that here? Okay, yeah, okay, right, okay. And, and we think that it is, all right? But the Corinthians could legitimately say, it would be better for us if we didn't go to any of your worship services, okay? And so Why? What makes their coming together for worship such a detriment to their spiritual health? Well, Paul explains in verse 18. He says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And he continues then with some irony. And he says, And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine, meaning excellent or superior among you, may be recognized. In other words, in, in order that those who, uh, who are among you that are of that superior class can be distinguished from, say, the dregs around you. And that really starts to tell us about what's going on here. Their, their gathering together is only a partial togetherness. They might be gathering in one place, but their gathering is subdivided into all kinds of sociological buckets. That's why he says, verse 21, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. It's because Corinthians have incorporated the same class divisions, that is the stuff of life, vocation, identity, clothing, markers, all of that that is in their culture into the church. And so Paul says, verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. And why? Verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. And this, this really starts to put a practical face on their divisions. It means for the Corinthians, first and foremost, what matters is themselves. Each and one. That's why, that's why the singulars abound in this phrase. Each one, singular, goes ahead with his own singular meal. One, singular, goes hungry. Another, singular, gets drunk. If you want to picture, it's like a, a very, very bad potluck. Maybe worse than you've ever even imagined. Okay? It's not that everybody gets sick. It's that everyone brings their own stuff. There's nothing to share. Some have a lot. Some don't have anything. And the ones who have, they flaunt it. They smack their gums. They, they say, look at what we have right in front of all those that don't have anything at all, to shame them. And so Paul exclaims, verse 22, What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And so this again takes us just a little bit deeper into the problem we get a sense here that if you took away the Christian language, say, um, Lord's Supper and church, well, 
you wouldn't have anything left to identify this gathering as Christian. To put it a little differently, what they really look like is what they did before they were converted. The very same cultural hierarchy, divisions, obstacles, superiority and inferiority complexes. I'm rich, you're a slave. And general self-serving, self-exalting, taking advantage of one another kind of behavior that occurs outside the church is happening inside the church. And that, even when their gathering is for the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. That's why Paul's so exceedingly frustrated. It seems like they've almost completely forgotten who they are and why they're there, and they've returned to who they were. And so what's the answer? Point you what they're supposed to look like. Paul sets in immediately, verse 23, without any transition. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, and, and you know the rest. We have here a review, a, a re-education of how the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper. But it begs the question of why. Why here? The Corinthians surely have a problem with the Lord's Supper, but it's, it's not their only problem. Their whole worship service is a, is a me-centricity. And so why jump into the Lord's Supper alone? And the answer is threefold. One, the Lord's Supper points up what our gathering together and our relating with one another is all about in a general sense. And two, it does show them what they're supposed to look like then. But three, the Lord's Supper is in itself effective. And so let's look at the last two in particular. First, the contrast between the Corinthians, their Lord's Supper, and the Lord's Lord's Supper. The two couldn't be further apart. Perhaps the best entry point is, is looking at the, the relationship between the haves and the have-nots. In Corinth, the haves use what they have to lord it over, to humiliate or shame those who don't. And thus, they despise and they harm the church of God. But think about the contrast with the Lord. The Lord possesses wealth beyond all measure. There is no treasure that the Lord does not rightfully own in all of heaven and earth. He's the creator of all things. He's truly and fully God. In other words, he has more than any have could have. But even more than that, he also has grounds to humiliate, to judge, punish all of them. But he doesn't. Instead, he willingly submits himself to his Father's will. He condescends from heaven. He takes on the nature of a man. He lives a perfect life. And then he suffers all the humiliation and punishment that they deserved for them. That's the sense of this, this is my body which is for you. And it's the consequence of this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And it's awesome, right? Isn't it awesome? It's amazing. But, but think about the timing here too. This Lord's Supper for the Lord is a Passover supper. The lamb who symbolically bore in Israel's iniquity is on the eve of their exodus from Egypt is sitting on the table. And further, as Paul reminds us in verse 23, this was the night when Jesus was betrayed. 
It means in only a, a small number of hours from now, Jesus will be handed over to lawless men by his very own. He'll be tried. He'll be sentenced. He'll be crucified. And therefore, this isn't just another meal. This isn't a going through the motions. This is his last meal. And everything about it points to it being his last meal and and everything that that means. And Jesus knows it. He tells all the disciples about it over and over and over again. And he's telling them about it right here. It means that what we find in the contrast between the Corinthians and the Lord's Supper is not just difference, but, but opposition. As far as theirs was all about themselves, exclusive, me-centric, and self-serving, the Lord's was all about us, inclusive, other-centric, and self-sacrificing, and that intentionally, even to his last living breath. It's no wonder that Paul says, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. And yet even that isn't quite the height of the contrast between these two. See, the most crucial difference lies in that repeated phrase in verse 24, 25, and sort of in 26. Do this in remembrance of me. And then verse 25, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then verse 26, as often as you eat this uh, bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, which is to say, you do remember me. And that means even above and beyond Christ's self-sacrificing emphasis on them, their emphasis ought to be on him. It means our gathering together as a church, and particularly for the Lord's Supper, should have as its focal point remembering him, what he's done, and who he is, past, present, and future. And why? Well, because... Their remembering him actually does something. That's the special thing here. That's the sense of the logical progression of the language. What the Lord delivered to his disciples, his disciples and Paul received, and what Paul received, he delivered to the Corinthians, and in their receiving, they're supposed to be transformed just like the disciples were into those who proclaim his death until he comes, or into deliverers into rememberers, into witnesses. And therefore, our right remembering the Lord isn't just uh, for tradition's sake, but it's for transformation's sake. It's one of the means that the Lord uses to feed and to change his people. And that's why Paul's so concerned. And the warning, right after the, the words of institution, comes so quickly he says, verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread and, or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. In other words, there are consequences for those who forget the Lord in their gathering for his supper. There's consequences for good, there's consequences for bad. And so how do, how do they avoid these consequences? Point three, how to recover what they've lost. Paul says, verse 28, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And perhaps you've asked this question before. Um, What are we supposed to examine ourselves for? Is it just to make sure that we know what we look like? 
Well, in a certain sense, yes. But the context sharpens it. You see, it's the Corinthians who are the examples here of eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. And why? Well, because by all indications, they've utterly forgotten who the Lord is. They live in a me-centric world outside the church, and they look like a me-centric people inside the church. That's what Paul's drawing their attention to. It's a a self-examination in which we're supposed to discern who we are, and the only way that that happens, that we discern who we are, is in discerning who the Lord is. That's why the explanatory warning follows about discerning the body. It's to say, do you, do you really recognize your desperate need for this body, the Lord's body, that apart from Him, you are condemned with the world, that you need Christ? And at the same time, by the grace of God, He's come to you and He's given Himself up for you. It's a discernment that, that when we really discern it, far from making us forgetful, it makes us hungry for Christ. That's what Paul's getting at here. The Corinthians, they're not hungry, at least not for Christ. And as a result, they're forgetful and they're loose, they're arrogant, they're numb to their continuing sinfulness. And so Paul explains that they're already suffering the marks of the Lord's discipline. He says, verse 30, that is why. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. And so he again alerts them quickly back to the, way, to the way back. He says, verse 31, But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged, or we wouldn't be disciplined. It's to say coming to the table in a worthy manner looks like examining ourselves honestly and truly. Not as you compare it to the person next to you, and not as you compare it to perfection, as if you've arrived, but as a sinner before the Lord who recognizes that he's a sinner before the Lord in need of the grace of the Lord. And therefore, it's not a call to sinlessness or a rival. The Lord knows that we're sinners, and we will continue to to wrestle and, and fall and fail with sin. But he beckons us to come to him with an honest and thus a humble and contrite heart to strive to put away falsehood, to let go of any preconceived plans to sin, in a discerning his body given for us to recommit our body to him. And so what should we take away from this? Well, Paul's rebuke and re-education of the Corinthians should confront us with how we understand and see our own selves. It's those two basic questions of who are you and where did you come from? And so how do you think you might answer those questions? Where would you say your root sense of identity is found? In your family lineage, if you're not Dutch, you're not much, so I've heard. Your resume, your net worth, your DNA. What's interesting here is, you know, despite that being the question, Paul doesn't doesn't ask the Corinthians that question. We We don't know exactly how they might have answered. Because he doesn't need to He doesn't need to ask them the question because he he gets everything he needs to know about their answer to the question from how they gather together for worship. And so what do you think that would say about you? For instance, why did you come tonight? Why are you here? Is it to satisfy some token sense of obligation? 
Do you have nothing better to do? Is it a matter of entertainment or, or perhaps sustenance? You're hoping that after this evening service there might be coffee and snacks? You got the, you got the morning and evening mixed up? Or, or is it a matter of peer pressure or peer, or peer pleasing or perhaps business opportunities or in a little different vein? What, what do your relationships with other Christians, what, what do they say about you? What do they look like? When you come together, are you an agent for division? Are you spreading the bad news about what happened with that person so that you can distance yourself from that person? Are you primarily focused on what everyone around you thinks about you? Are you most concerned with, after this, how quickly you can get out of here so that no one will have a chance to get to know you and you won't have anyone to, to get to know? Do you ever invest in hospitality with other Christians or non-Christians? Are you primarily concerned with how a person's presence who happens to be here this time or seems to be coming might affect you or your kids or disrupt your comfort when you do assemble together? Well, I'm sure none of those thoughts have actually occurred to anyone here, okay? So they're just hypothetical. But um, can you start to see what they might say? They, they tell us something about how we understand ourselves who we really think we are, and where we really think that we come from. And all too often, the answer to that question has a whole lot to do with me. The reason we're here is for me. And the reason we relate with them or that we don't is because of what they can or can't do for me. Above all else, we remember me. And so just like the Corinthians, sometimes we too forget who we really are. And so what's the solution? How do we change or, or recover who we really are? Well, that too is the same as it was for them. As Paul reminds us, our Lord on the night when he was betrayed said, remember me. And that's what we need to take away from here. The solution to our amnesia about or our willing perversion of who we are is to remember him. And that's why the Lord's Supper figures so prominently in this context. It's because it's such a tactile picture of who the Lord is, what He's done for us, and as a result, who we really are now. And so what do we find there? Well, it's the story of where our story and Christ intersect. It's the story of our being a people who were dead in their trespasses and sins, awaiting their just condemnation to an eternal death and hell, a people so colored by the depth of their foolishness and the depravity of their wickedness that they deserve to be humiliated, and yet they weren't. It's an amazing, awesome story of cosmic proportions, despite our owing an insurmountable debt, not to our neighbor, not to the bank, but to God, God who is holy and righteous and perfect and has done everything well and has given us everything that we have, chose mercy. Instead of being condemned along with the world, he sent his son to be condemned in our place. And thus his body was broken instead of ours. And his blood poured out instead of ours. And as a result, there is a new covenant relationship between God and Christ for us. It's a relationship in which he has rendered us sons instead of rebels and heirs instead of debtors. 
and united to him and to one another, all the people here, instead of divided. And therefore, it's a relationship that has redefined who we are and where we've come from far above and beyond the best family story, cultural status, or biological pedigree that you could ever hope for. All of that is bad relative to this. And this puts all of that in its proper perspective. It gives it its appropriate meaning. And that's what we find ourselves reminded of and increasingly built up into as we remember him. Or to put it another way, it's only a part from his story that we can't know our story. We can't know who we are. And it's only as we remember his story that the Holy Spirit makes us to understand and remember who we really are and changes us into who we're really meant to be. And in that way, our remembering him is far more than this warm, fuzzy nostalgia. It's, it's the spiritual means by which the Holy Spirit joins us to the living Christ in one another and solidifies our faith and feeds our souls. And as that happens, it can't, it can't help but change how we do church and how we do one another. It transforms our worship from a burden to an imposition on our time to this desperate need to know more of Him. I want more. I want more Jesus. And this desperate need to share and express more of our adoration of Him. It transforms our coming together from this annoyance or this trial or oh, not them again or a contest to this longed-for homecoming in which we marvel together at what the Lord has done in our lives. And therefore, as we prepare ourselves to come to his table, let his life story permanently attach to your brains because our life in his our life in His is the real anchor of our souls. It's only in His body given that our sins are forgiven. And it's only in His body raised that we have been raised to new life together with all the saints in Him. This, you see, this is who we really are. This is where we really come from. It's because Jesus' life story, that's your life story. And that, that's the best news that any sinner could ever receive. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Almighty God, Lord, thank you so much for Jesus Christ. Lord, would you, by your Holy Spirit, transform our hearts increasingly to see Christ, to love Christ, and to be those who have received Christ and transformed into his witnesses. Lord, please help us to grow. May we be fully satisfied in Christ and a people built up together in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.